Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 125 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we did our annual wrap-up on ABA Tech Show. And since we both spoke at Tech Show and ran into some interesting issues, we thought it was a good time to do a show on presentation tips and techniques. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be talking about the technology of giving presentations and giving some of our tips. In our second segment, we'll talk about the Heartbleed security issue that's been getting a lot of attention lately. And as usual, we'll close with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's a presentation technology. I know I went back and looked, and I know we've spoken in the past about giving presentations. We did an episode on PowerPoint. We did an episode on, on presentation tips when your time is running short. But I don't think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Dennis, I don't think we've ever done a, you know, done a session simply on general presentation tips and technologies. I know that I certainly had some interesting experiences presenting at Tech Show. I'm hearing that and thinking that maybe you did too. Was that what gave you the idea to cover the topic for this episode? Yeah, well, actually two things. So one was uh, a couple of things at Tech Show and then uh, a, a recent presentation I did. And and also uh, there's a podcast I mentioned a while back on our podcast called the Ladies in Tech Podcast, which in, they kind of do this interesting thing of breaking their podcast episodes down into seasons. But in their first season, they interviewed people about some of the most unusual experiences that they had while doing presentations. And I thought that was a really fun approach and it in every episode, it reminded me of, of something bizarre that had happened to me while uh, while presenting. So it's kind of a combination of the two. And then also, I was reminded again of how you have to be flexible. And sort of the good thing about doing a lot of presentations is you've run into some of the same things over and over again. But needing flexibility, having a kind of toolbox of tips and tricks can be really helpful because, you know, a lot of times the presentation, you're going to be pretty confident about and know what you're doing but the uh, you know when you try to put the cable into the projector that's when you start to get a little nervous and so my favorite example at tech show was and I think I mentioned this to you was that Allison Shields and I were going to do a presentation where we were going live on the internet which I hate 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 to do even after something like 18 years of doing presentations about uh, lawyers using internet so the internet part, going live on the internet, worked okay, but when I got into the room, there was a cable to plug into the projector, was, and the cable was lying on the table, and I plugged it into my computer, and nothing came out of the projector, and I tried a number of different things, and I looked at the projector, and, and then I realized that the cable that was sitting on the, on the table that looked like I needed to plug it in wasn't actually connected to the projector, <laughs> the cable I needed to do was down on the floor where it had fallen after the earlier presentation. So that probably in itself was uh, one of the things that motivated the idea for this topic. 
You know, I think you're right. We're not going to, I think, during this part of the, the episode, talk about ways to maximize your presenting skills. I think there are better podcasts or better people to talk about that. And I think that one of the themes that we'll be mentioning quite a bit throughout this segment is the idea of, if not preparation, at least coming in ahead of time and getting a lay of the land and understanding where you are and the fact that you went in to go do that ahead of time and didn't just rush in two minutes before the session was supposed to start, really it gave you the opportunity to to fix things. You know, presenting with the internet is always a hit and miss, even if you have your own internet connection. I did two sessions, one on Thursday and one on Friday at ABA Tech Show. I used the live internet with both sessions, and I didn't use their plug-in. I needed to be able to use a wireless connection because we were connecting multiple computers to the projector. And I have to say that on Thursday, it worked really well. And on Friday, it didn't work so well. And you have to be prepared for both eventualities. And so I think that having, I think, what we were talking about earlier beforehand, you're going to have your belt and suspenders and you're going to have your safety pins and you're going to have uh, probably two or three other types of backup things to help you uh, if things happen to go wrong. I think, though, that, you know, as you and I were talking, this sort of leads me into thinking that for most people, keeping things really simple is important. Is that where you're headed with that, too? Well, I think that the simpleness has always been a big concern of mine. And so that was one of the things I realized of going live on the internet. So if I'm going live on the internet, and as I did this time, I had screen captures of everything that I wanted to show as my backup. So I do that. But what I realized is that over the years, I typically will advance the slides by using the space bar. Because I figure like no matter what happens, or if I'm nervous, or for some reason I feel a little shaky or whatever, I can always like just hit the space bar. You know, anybody can do that. That keeps it really simple. You're just going to advance one slide at a time. That's great. And then you don't run into the thing, you know, with the wireless mouse and the stuff where people are clicking and nothing is happening. So I've always liked that approach to keeping it really simple. And because the one thing I found of being live was that with my MacBook Air, which has the touchpad mouse, it was really tricky being live because you have really high resolution on the screen, and then you have this touchpad that you're kind of moving your finger on, trying to click on things that are fairly small on the screen. And so that's not an ideal way to present, which is why sometimes I like to do something that would ordinarily be live on the internet with screen captures and then put those onto PowerPoint slides and just advance them one at a time to make it look as if I'm on the internet because having that really fine motor control that you need you know, when you're in front of a group of people and you're talking and you're trying to click on small buttons can be a little tricky and sometimes things happen that you don't expect just because you don't have enough control. So I do go to this thing of like how can I simplify what I'm doing so I can focus on what I'm doing and not so much on the technology that I'm using. So I go to that simplified approach and then I look to go back to what you were saying. Also, I think that thing of getting into the room really early and getting set up early and making sure that you know you advance your slides, you make sure what things look like, you go in the back of the room, you make sure that people, you know, that you can see it as if the person in the back of the room can see it. All those things are great. 
if you have the time. What I've noticed is that a lot of conferences, they're squeezing the break times, and sometimes the people in front of you will go over, and so you would like to think that you have time to get it set up, but you often have a very short period of time to get connected and not much more time than plugging in the cable and getting ready to go. And that can really make things tricky. So again, the more you can do to simplify things and to make it easy for yourself is going to help you. Well, and if that were the case, if we had short windows, and you're right, I see that a lot these days at conferences, is that they're trying to shorten the windows, and usually there's not more than 15 minutes, sometimes less, between sessions. If that was the case at ABA Tech Show, I would have been sunk because I went in early, early, early that first morning of Tech Show to set everything up, and I think I can do you one better on your MacBook Air small buttons. There's something with my laptop. I just have a regular Windows PC laptop that I connected to the projector, and the minute that I connected it, it all of a sudden decided that the projector was a second monitor. I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. I couldn't figure out how to adjust it. If anybody who's listening has an idea on what kind of setting I can go into, because I still haven't found the setting, to make it not think that it's a second monitor, it would not show. If I tried to put it on regular format, it turned the entire projector screen. What was on the projector screen, it was pink. I have no idea why it was pink. Whatever was on my computer looked just fine. The benefit of being there 30 minutes ahead of time is that we could work out a backup solution that was certainly Certainly not ideal, but for the audience standpoint, it worked just fine. But what it wound up having me do was that I wound up having to treat that projector screen literally as a second monitor, and I couldn't actually look at my laptop to do anything. So I had to move everything onto that second monitor when I wanted to use it, and I had to actually squint and look way over at the projector screen to see what was going on as I was trying to demonstrate things, which is, again, another benefit of just running a PowerPoint presentation. But, you know, these days I try to do things live. I try to do demonstrations to make it more interactive for people. And I will say that if I had gone in there five minutes ahead of time, it might have been 20 minutes into the session before I actually had that technology fixed. So I, unfortunately, that's a problem that may be unavoidable given the uh, situation that you have. I, I'm just giving a vote there for get there ahead of time. But I think that my real lesson is I need to get rid of this laptop and figure out something better to do with it. When I think of other problems Problems that I've seen people that have happened to them I certainly come back to that internet connection, not being able to get to things. I've seen speakers just die on stage because they couldn't actually get those things to show up. I've had this happen to me before. I know that others have had it happen too, where you thought that your laptop was plugged in and it wasn't, and all of a sudden it dies. And you're sitting there with no presentation, nothing going on. You thought you plugged it in. It wasn't plugged in. What I've seen before and what I've actually done before, I once or twice did not practice what I preached, and uh, I do a lot of presentations on iPad apps, and I am always telling lawyers, don't update the app before you go to trial, before you go into court, because you don't know if something has changed, and I will frequently, the day before a presentation, think, oh, a new update. I'd love to show my audience about it, and then I don't wind up having the time to check it out and make sure that it works okay, and I go in, and the app is either an update that it doesn't make sense, and things have moved around or stuff is missing, or for some reason, I can't even log into it, which isn't very beneficial to the audience. So those are some of the bad situations that I've seen other than what we've talked about about sooner. Dennis, any other either problems that you've seen or, or maybe we'd want to talk about tricks that help you survive common problems? Well, just, I mean, it's funny, like everything that you say just reminds me of something that 
I've run into over time. So the thing you're talking about, the you know, the second monitor and then having to look over at the the big screen to see what was going on on your computer. And this also applies to computers. Sometimes you just have computers that can be a little quirky with projectors and I've run into that before. But you know, I once had the the presentation where the only way it would go up onto the big screen was that the laptop screen was dark. So I basically had to <laughs> really <laughs> use what was going on on the big screen your as my screen. Yeah. And so so that's tricky. And then as you say, the battery dying, I haven't fortunately run into that yet, but but you do run into the thing where a screensaver will kick in. And so there's like a number of things that are almost like a checklist. You know? So you want to make sure that you turn off the screensaver, that you want to exit out of instant message programs and, and things like that, anything that's going to pop up during the middle of your presentation. So there will be lots of things like that. And then to me, it's that last step from your computer to the projector that I think is tricky. That used to be something that was really tricky and went through a period of a couple of years where it seemed like everything was smooth. And now I think it's back to being tricky again. And then it's not always clear where the problem is, you know, whether it's on your laptop, on the computer, or on the projector, or in the cable. And so last week I did a presentation, it was at a local university, and so it was in a classroom, and they had, it was an older, older style of approach, but I plugged in my computer, again, very short time between the speaker ahead of me and me, like in the order of five minutes, plugged it in, nothing happened. I looked for an A-B switch to kind of, you know, like a mechanical switch to kind of throw what was going on in my laptop on there. The person who was introducing me said they thought it was a touch screen. It was sort of like the very old style of touch screen. And we tried that. There was nothing there. There was an AV guy, fortunately, who came in and basically you went two levels deep into the touch screen to get to the point that would throw what was on my computer up onto the screen. And, you know, once once you saw it work, it was, you know, you understood it, but you would never guess it because it was like one more step. So I think that that's where I, I start to worry these days is actually at the projector. And we went through, like I said, there's a period of, it seems like two or three years where you never had any problems with the projector. Now, for some reason, you run into more of that. And there may be more of that coming because the cables are switching kind of from the VGA to HDMI and other things like that. So you know, perhaps some Wi-Fi. For me, Tom, I, I really admire what you do with the iPad presentations. I think that's really cool, but it just seems like that's a whole different level of complication you introduce into things. It seems like it's worth it, but it seems like you're probably, and I know because I've seen you present, that sometimes you run into some really weird things that happen. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because you're talking about the projector issues. And I have, for a couple of years now, talked about presenting on the iPad. And my preference now is actually to present on the iPad if I can, even if I'm just going to do a presentation, because I like to have the freedom of walking around and and not being tethered to anything. And, And it used to be that I would recommend that people use an Apple TV to present with. And you're right, there is a level of complication that's introduced there, because to get that set up, you need to first have a projector that has HDMI, 
that has a high definition port on it. You plug the Apple TV into that. Then you need to have a a wireless network somewhere out there uh, that you can connect both the Apple TV and your iPad to. Once you do that, it's pretty simple to just move over to AirPlay on your iPad and project through the Apple TV. When you saw me presenting at the Apple Store in Chicago, that's how we did it there. The Apple Store obviously had a bunch of Apple TVs set up, and I was able to connect through that. And I think it worked pretty well during the the session itself, although it took us a while to get connected. What I've been finding, though, these days is is that even though you claim that projectors are moving from VGA to HDMI, and I would challenge you on that because I would say that most hotels I go to these days don't have HDMI. Most courthouses, I would argue, for lawyers who are in trial or presenting in front of a judge or a jury, certainly don't have high definition, at least on the level that I would expect. And because you can't count on having the type of projector you need to run an Apple TV, I actually have a different setup. And it's something that we ran at Tech Show that actually worked very well. But again, not really complicated, just requires a little bit of extra equipment. And I I run a, a piece of software now called Air Server. I know there's another tool called Reflector, but I like Air Server better. It's a $14.99 piece of software that you install on your laptop. And what it does is you make sure that your laptop and your iPad are connected to the same network. And then uh, you just hit AirPlay on your iPad and it will mirror your iPad to the laptop screen. So all you have to do really is connect your laptop to the projector like always through a VGA connector and you're presenting wirelessly with your iPad. We did it for both of the sessions that we had at Tech Show. I thought it worked out really well. It is a little bit of uh, you know a setup. You've got to have it kind of people keep saying, well, if you're going to bring the laptop, why not present just with the laptop? Well, I like to walk around the room. I like to have just a, the iPad that I have to carry, and it's a lot easier for me to deal with it that way. So a couple of different options that you have, but that's really what I'm finding these days is uh, working for me. If we, we talk about the things that we do differently now than we did before, I'd have to say that for the most part, I don't present with a laptop anymore. I'm really presenting almost all the time on my iPad, whether it's to demo the iPad or whether it's to... Uh, to show just a regular presentation on PowerPoint or Keynote. I think that's ultimately the direction I'd like to go. I mean, I've seen people present off an iPhone before, and I think it's cool if it works with the way that you work and it's not too difficult. And you, you kind of have to take into account who you are, whether you're moving around a lot, whether you're not moving around a lot. Like I said, there's sort of fine motor control. If when you get nervous, you get a little, you know, that the smaller screens can obviously be a little more difficult. But, you know, that's something to keep in mind. I don't know, Tom, I was kind of thinking of maybe talking about what I do when I present these days, because I think I'm a little bit of a nut on this, but I have, you know, basically the PowerPoint slides or, you know, whatever I'm going to use to present on my laptop. I have it generally on my iPad. I have it on a USB drive. I have, I've emailed it to myself in, in Gmail. I have it on Dropbox and I have a printout, three slides to a page all with me. And I'm prepared to go without any slides showing on the screen if need be. And that's sort of when we talked about building suspenders plus, 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 that's where I feel I'm at. Because I don't want to, if the technology isn't going to work, I don't want to waste people's time or my time trying to fiddle 
with making it work if I can just do the presentation. That's especially true if, if you know if you're part of a panel. I don't know that you want to, you know, to work and work on getting the technology and use up all the time unless you, as you said earlier time before we started this, unless you have Jim Calloway on the, the panel who can kind of make jokes and kind of keep things moving while you're trying to fix things. But I would just rather go ahead and roll into the presentation. And worst case scenario, if it's not working, just say, hey, I want to do something new. Like who, everybody's tired of PowerPoints. I'm just going to do it without anything and, you know, and, and use the paper printout that I have or, or just use my PowerPoint slides on my laptop or an iPad without actually showing it on the screen. You know, I um, I totally agree with you that having multiple backups of a PowerPoint is, or whatever presentation you're using, is a good idea, and it's something that I just don't do that often. And part of that's because most of my presentations these days are demos, and I can't make a backup of a demo, and it's harder for me to do that. But I think that to the extent you're in a PowerPoint or a keynote world, having backups of that and printouts and being able to to use it in different places, I think is is tremendously important. And, and you mentioned Jim Cal. Calloway really is also important as well. I mean, not having Jim Calloway with you, although that'd be nice. I think Jim has got lots of other things to do. But I think the point is, and what I have found valuable to me, I don't know how well it works, but I think that it works at least in some cases, is that when that technology goes bad, being able to still talk while you're trying to fix it. There's nothing more awkward or painful than sitting there with you in silence trying to fix a technology problem while the audience is sitting there waiting for something to happen. Very awkward. So to the extent that you can develop a patter, that you can talk about things and you can have that conversation, even though your head may be down as you're working on your computer or working on the projector to fix something, I think it's really important to keep that engagement up with the audience because they feel like you're still trying to connect with them. And I've been there before when the technology goes bad and those silences, they are really deadly and it's hard to come back from those. You know, one of the things I know, Dennis, we were going to talk about on this segment were kind of ideas that we want to try going forwards in presentations. And as far as technology is concerned, I'm going to go with two things and then I'll let you take us out of this segment. One is one that I've actually already tried. I tried it at Tech Show and I really like it. It's the idea of doing live polls during your seminar. I used a service called Poll Everywhere and you're going to pay a little bit depending on the size of your audience, but I paid for one month's worth and then I cut the service off so it's not terribly expensive. What it allows you to do is it allows you to create polls that you can embed into your PowerPoint slide slides that once you connect to the internet is actually live in real time as people vote on them you can see the votes change so if you're ever in a presentation where uh, where you need to take a vote or want to get people's opinion on something either before or after or during a presentation I really liked how poll everywhere worked it was really cool to watch the result to roll in on screen as people were voting either with text messages or by tweeting it or going online that's one idea the other thing that I just haven't had time to really explore are some of these alternative presentation tools like Prezi. There are a couple of others that are out there, but Prezi is the one that really interests me because it really takes a different approach to creating a presentation where it becomes more of like this massive diagram that you kind of zoom in and out of different pieces of that diagram and those zooming in parts become your slides. And I think it's a really intriguing way of dealing with data and looking at presentations in a different way. I just haven't had time to learn enough about how it works, but but that's kind of something that I'd like to do better about presentations. Dennis, how about you? Anything else that you want to talk about before you uh, wrap up this part of the segment? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you know the first thing that you were saying about the polling the audience in in different ways, just to make it a little more interactive and interesting and modern. I have noticed lately that it seems like in more and more presentations that I go to, despite people talking about things like Prezi and different approaches, that it really seems like people are slipping back to that dense, dense text, small fonts, and lots of bullet points. I thought we had gotten away from that, and I really tried to go away from that, but it seems like you see a lot more of that. If I'm going to do anything, I've been given a lot of thought to, there's some studies that indicate that probably about every 10 minutes you need to do something uh, a little bit different to keep people's attention. And so that could be video, that could be the polling, that could be moving around, that could be asking people questions. And and so I'm thinking about looking at that sort of 10-minute rule and doing some exploration around there. Otherwise, I'm just trying to Every time I do something, I just wait to see what new and interesting thing is going to happen and then whether I can be flexible enough to work around it or whether it's something, you know, something that that I've run into before. And it's sort of like once that happens, I go like, oh, okay, now I'm over that hurdle. (laughs) Now I can just concentrate on on the presentation. So what I would say to people, you know, just to wrap up is that you kind of have to develop this toolbox, uh, common workarounds and tips. There's a lot of great information out there from speakers really tend to share that information and and then be willing to try a, f- a few new things and, and especially in each year I would I think as a presenter that it's good to say I would like to try some new technique in, in how I do presentations before we move on to our next segment let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. The internet has been a buzz since our last episode with a very, very serious security issue known as Heartbleed. After discussion of this as perhaps the most significant security issue we've seen in a long, long time, a discussion and an issue that came out right at the same time as Windows XP support ended and a lot of talk about computers running Windows XP becoming very open to security attacks. The interest in Heartbleed itself seems to have waned a bit in the last few days or or week. I think both because the danger is difficult to explain and the course of correction is confusing. But it's a very, very important issue and something we all need to pay attention to. So, Tom, I I thought maybe we should try to do our part to help our listeners figure out what they need to do to prevent uh, the problems that might arise because of Heartbleed. What do you think? Well, I think that we don't want to get into the technical details. I think we can leave that to other podcasts and other experts on on the technical issue. But one of the things that uh, I just want to kind of briefly talk about what Heartbleed was, what it did, and maybe kind of why it 
the reaction has been the way that it has been. You know, Heartbleed is a vulnerability in something called Open SSL. SSL stands for Secure Socket Layer. It's an encryption technique that you will see in any website that starts with an HTTPS. Many companies use that to encrypt uh, the communications when you are on websites like that. If you are on Gmail, you will notice an HTTPS, which means that your email between Gmail email users is encrypted to a certain extent when you send it out. It's also encrypted even when you send it out to other people. But there's a couple of versions of SSL. One of them is an open source version called OpenSSL. And there was a vulnerability in it which allows, uh, allows the bad folks to exploit and get information and grab lots of login and other types of information from users. Like I said, I'm not going to get into the details about it other than that you need to know that it is a vulnerability that exists that has the potential risk to all of us. Um, the good news is, is that once it was discovered, and sort of the scary thing about it is, is it's been out there for a number of years now without uh, anybody knowing about it. And given that we haven't seen a lot of, I think, results from it, we're thinking that that there's not a lot of the hackers who are aware of it and we're taking advantage of it. But there could be, and we still don't know all of that for sure. But the fact is, is that once it was discovered, it was a patch was created created very quickly and websites were encouraged to fix their security certificates and their open SSL to apply a patch to that as soon as possible. What we've seen though since that time is what I think are are kind of some myths that I've seen. The first thing that I saw was that the entire internet has been compromised and that it's open season for hackers, which, you know, probably isn't true. First of all, it affects only those sites that have open SSL and and not all websites do that. It's not the entirety of the internet. It's a smaller percentage than that. I was listening last week to a a podcast where a a security company measured the top 1 million websites on Alexa. And of those 1 million sites, I think they said that 20,000 were not patched yet. So that's uh, 2%, which uh, 20,000 seems like a lot, but when you think it's a 2% 2% of the, the top 1 million. It's not a bad job that most of those websites have gone and, and have fixed what they need to do. The other myth that I hear a lot is uh, the minute that, that we found out about this, the guidance was you need to go out and change all of your passwords. And after what I've read and what I think is, I'm thinking that certainly if you want to change all of your passwords, I will not discourage you from doing that. It's never a bad idea to change passwords. But I think that that is a little bit of overreaction because a a lot of the websites that you deal with didn't use open SSL and they don't have the same vulnerability that those that did. And I think that having the right resources is important in those circumstances. I know that a couple of websites, Mashable was one, posted a list of here are the major websites on the internet that had open SSL and what is the status of their fix? Is it fixed or is it not fixed yet? I thought that was extremely valuable to have. I can tell you that if you are you're one of the people that has listened to the some advice we've given here and and used a a password manager like LastPass, I noticed that a couple of days after the vulnerability came out, LastPass introduced a feature that would tell me, here are the websites that are in your vault, in your password vault, that used OpenSSL, go change these passwords. So instead of having to go to all 340 websites in my password vault and change all of them, I only had to change about 15 or 20. And it was easy and quick, and I was able to get through it. Whether you have LastPass or 
whether you want to go to the Mashable page, I think that going to some of the major sites, certainly Google, Facebook, Yahoo, most of those sites are using open SSL. Twitter's a little, uh, I was not asked to, told to change my Twitter password, but uh, most of the banking sites, uh, to my knowledge, what I read, do not use open SSL. But at least going out and trying to figure out, are there websites that you visited or that, that you use on a regular basis that contain lots of secure information, confidential information? I went and changed my Dropbox password, for example. Things that I thought were had confidential things, I went ahead and changed them out of abundance of caution. And also because LastPass said that they were potentially compromised sites. So I'm kind of rambling on a little bit here. I'll turn it over to you, Dennis. Those are kind of my thoughts are don't go crazy and change all your passwords unless you want to. But if you choose not to, do your homework, figure out what kind of passwords, what what sites were compromised so you can go and, and do a targeted change of those passwords. Well, I think the concern that I had and I still have is that some of the people who are very knowledgeable in computer security said this is as bad as it gets in terms of a security issue. What I thought was difficult was that while the the problem is out there, before the patches are installed, you could t- change your password as many times as you want, and it was still vulnerable. So it didn't totally make sense to, to change all those passwords because you might have to do it right away. So then once it got patched, there was a problem that was introduced because the security certificates could be bad or compromised. Those security certificates need to be reissued and renewed. And so you're sort of waiting on guidance from the different websites and service providers to say, okay, everything's patched, everything's updated, it's ready to go. Then it made sense to change passwords. And then there's also concern that the this uh, secure socket layer was going to be with the OpenS SSL could be found in other places than just websites, you know, throughout different systems, throughout different programs. So, again, that complicates everything. And so, as you're waiting to get guidance and you're not hearing from some of the main websites, so some sites posted right away saying that they had no issue or that they had fixed the problem. As you're sort of waiting on that to kind of pull the trigger on changing, you know, passwords, you keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And I don't see a lot of guidance. So I, I think there's a couple learnings from that. And I think that, as we've said before, Tom, I think this movement to get yourself into a password manager really makes sense. I think the idea of putting together some approach where on a regular basis, you know, monthly, quarterly, whatever, that you're changing passwords also makes sense, at least the important passwords. And, and a lot of organizations enforce that. It's certainly for on, on network passwords. And then the other big thing that's that's really important in this scenario is the multi-factor authentication, which is to say that you want to do something where you not only have the password, but there's something else, your phone or a fob or something has to come into play. And that way you're, it takes two things to get into your accounts. Or the other thing I think is helpful too is that where you get a text message or an email when you or anyone else attempts to change your password, that can also alert you that something's going on. So every time something like this happens, it goes back to like what are the good basic standard security practices, and it's another reminder. But in terms of 
how this worked and what it exposed, you know, this one is a bad one. So uh, it's important for people to stay on top of this. And it's called Heartbleed. So keep an eye out. If you do Google alerts or anything like that, keep an eye out for any developments on anything that you're using that relates to that. And I would probably say at this point, you do want to start to begin that process of changing your passwords. Yep, yep. Now it's time for our parting shots at one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, when I had my iPhone, I was a big fan of the PhotoSync app because at that time it was a great way for me to take the f- pictures that I took on my iPhone and I could immediately transfer them to my computer with no problem. And it would just automatically sync them up to the folder of my choice on my computer. And I, I'm happy to learn that PhotoSync now is available for Android. And so I can now, with that PhotoSync app, I can sync my photos between my Android device, my iPad, my Mac, my Windows laptop. It's multi-platform. It can sync any of those places. It's not just for transferring between devices. It can also send stuff to your Google Drive, to your Flickr account, to Facebook, to SmugMug, to SugarSync, to Dropbox, multiple different places. It's a very powerful photo syncing tool that goes just about anywhere you want it to go. I don't think it's free, but it's certainly worth the cost of whatever it is you pay for it. Photo sync. Dennis. People often don't really understand why I like podcasts so much, and I always try to come up with good examples of podcasts that they might try to listen to. So one that I'm liking now is called our set of podcasts from After Buzz TV, and these are TV show specific. So if you like a show, these are typically done right after the episode. A group of people talk about the show, summarize the show, talk about what's going on, news related to your favorite TV show. They might have interviews with with actors or the show creator. It's really great. I love the show called Orphan Black, which started up. And so I've, I, you know, I'm subscribed to that podcast. I'm starting to watch a new show called Turn. I'm on that one. I love the show on sci fi called Helix. You know, again, great after buzz tv podcast on that and it's a great way to kind of keep up with what's going on see what other fans are talking about and kind of compare notes to what you think about the tv show and so this is a great way to show how podcasts can be fun and useful and don't have to be totally business related yeah you've just added to my podcast listening time this is going to be a bad 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 addiction that i'm going to have looking at these podcasts So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can also get to the archives of all of our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question or a topic for an upcoming podcast, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating this podcast or writing a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.